Well, hi, folks. What's the state of your union out there, huh? <laughs> That's Rick Wagner here at KNZ KGLN. We're one, let's see, 101.3, 980 on KGLN, 92.7 and 1100 on KNZZ. See, I give that backward there just to sort of mix it up. But we appreciate you being back with us here this weekend. I mean, you're the whole reason that I look forward to the weekends is talking to you folks. So thanks for sticking with us. We are, of course, also on the Internet. If you want to go check us out at our webpage, rickwagnershow.com, pick up some of the Shows from the past, if you missed a show or something like that, or if you just want to, you know, have somebody else listen to it, that's that's okay, too. And all you listeners on the Internet, we appreciate your time as well. And, of course, the ships at sea. We want, don't want to forget those. I'm suspecting there may even be some ships at sea that are still out there uh, off of uh, the port of Los Angeles waiting to deliver things from uh, last year. <laughs> I remember seeing those ships stacked that looked like dominoes thrown far away in the distance. Uh, back there then, and I figured, how are they ever going to get those done? Especially with the uh, longshoreman situation there, the delivery situation. And, you know, it's pretty hard to be an independent truck driver in California with the way they have their union rules set up. So a lot of independent truckers out there aren't all that crazy about going to California and trying to figure out a way to deliver things. So it's uh, it'd be interesting to know how how that got resolved. It sort of popped up, a lot of talk about it, and then it just sort of disappeared. I sort of can imagine, you know, there was probably weeks on end out there when Pete Buttigieg was out there, probably stripped to the waist or maybe, you know, in, in, with his sleeves rolled up, just stevedoring things off those ships and working hard to get that stuff going. He is a secretary of transportation, and I'm sure he's working very hard in that way to get things figured out. He's done just a bang-up job, hasn't he? Yeah, and bang-up would be the operative term. We've had more near collisions in uh, air. We've had nothing but problems with uh, shipping and strikes and railroads and so forth. It's funny because normally we would say that we like laissez-faire government, you know, the sort of let things go, just keep the guardrails on. But see, Pete seems to have interpreted laissez-faire as do absolutely nothing. <laughs> have no connection to the job whatsoever. Don't even know how to drive a car, I don't think. Uh, has to have uh, his bicycle transported to the Capitol so he can ride two blocks on Bike to Work Day last year, remember? So I'm not exactly sure. Now, I'm going to let a limb here. I'm not so sure he's the right guy for the job of transportation. It's sort of like uh, Granholm, the woman who's the Secretary of uh, Energy. Uh, she doesn't have a lot of energy that I like, uh, and she doesn't seem to know anything about it. She apparently does seem to know a little bit about making investments in things that the Energy Department influences. So, you know, she's not completely out of her head. But then old Sleepy Joe isn't either. He knows that there's a lot of things that he's been involved with over the years that could be of interest uh, to people in other capitals. And I don't mean state capitals. And has managed to apparently with with his son, Hunter, make a pretty good living for his family that way. It's a good thing in many ways because... I don't think Joe could make a living doing anything else. I'm not sure that he could make a living running a uh, banana stand someplace. But he managed to make millions of dollars being in our government. Now, when you stop and think about that, it's hard to decide where the worst part of that problem is. Is it Joe or is it the way we let our government become and attract people like Joe? It's an interesting question. Uh, it's sort of a which started which sort of question. Anyway, I'm sure all of you have heard this week uh, endless analysis of the State of the Union address. 
We're not going to go over that again. That was, uh, whoo, man. <laughs> that was not fun. It just, it was painful to watch in the sense that, you know, you saw somebody who really has the IQ of a watermelon up there, uh, babbling away and shouting and kind of whispering and poor Kevin McCarthy. I have to give him one credit, you know, right there is that I couldn't have kept my face straight that long. I would fallen asleep a long time ago. Uh, of course, there's a couple of times where, you know, the president said some things that so outraged you that I'm sure there's enough of an adrenaline surge there to get it going on. I don't know if you've looked at the pictures either, but <laughs> if you look at the pictures of McCarthy and Kamala, 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 whatever, she looks like she's sitting in someone else's chair. I don't mean like another person, but an adult's chair, and she's just a smaller person in it. And I re- remembered the story that came out, maybe it came out the first part of the week, that uh, she'd had to have the desk and chair changed in Pence's office when she became vice president because she's just 5'2". And she went in and sat in his chair, and I, apparently her feet didn't touch the ground. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I find that funny, but it seems to me a perfect analogy for Kamala Harris. Her feet don't touch the ground. I mean, doesn't that kind of sum it up? Yeah, I kind of felt that same way myself. But uh, we got a lot going on. Uh, we talked a little bit last week about the Chinese spy balloon, which really got blown up. And it's hard to say if it got blown up out of proportion. Some people say, oh, well, you know, it's just been going on forever and this and that. Well, I hope not. And secondly, is the, the real question is, what is it really? Now, I'm certain there were some intelligence-gathering devices on that balloon. And, you know, I, I heard Marco Rubio talking about this, I think, on Tuesday or something. And I, I said this before, but Marco Rubio has really turned around. I'm really impressed with him. I was so surprised just a few months ago at how much more articulate he was on these issues, how much more informed, how much more uh, engaged he was, you know, like they meant something to him. Uh, you know, he had that problem running in the... Uh, last presidential election where he seemed to just be sort of parroting lines and got sort of uh, humiliated for that by uh, Chris Christie, of all people. And he just seems to have come around in a really, I think, uh, remarkable way. Uh, it's as though he, he had an, an awakening and say, look, I got to decide if I'm, I'm really engaged on these issues and what are these issues really excite me? Because let's face it, it's very difficult to be articulate and to be convincing on issues that you're not truly interested in. And I think that he was adrift for a while. They gave him issues to talk about and things to sort of posture on, and but they weren't necessarily uh, pushing him. They weren't driving him. And now the immigration and national defense seem to be things that have really caught his eye. And I have to say... My opinion is has went up a lot on that guy. But, you know, he was saying something that I think we all know is that, look, yeah, balloons are primitive compared to these spy satellites and so forth, but they also have some advantages, and that is that they're closer to the ground. So let's say you're using the same optical array that you would on a low uh, orbital satellite. Well, that's going to have a better picture, isn't it? I mean, because you are closer uh, using the same optical array. And you're moving much slower so that you're able to gather more information over the period of time. 
Now, for those of you out there who are familiar with orbital dynamics, you know that the closer a satellite is to the Earth, the faster it has to go. Its orbital speed has to be increased so that it doesn't crash into the Earth. It's how it, you fight the effects of gravity on orbital devices is as they get closer to the center of gravity, the speed that they have to move around it increases so they don't get pulled in. So low-flying orbital satellites move pretty quickly compared to something that's way out there. So a balloon, really, pretty good. I'm not saying, you know, it's around the world in 80 days kind of balloon, but uh, so it, it does have some advantages. However, at the same time, it's hard to think that the way this balloon, and apparently the one that they was one off Hawaii that they think crashed, and then there's one over Latin America, that you can sometimes see from the ground <laughs> is necessarily that much of a secret, right? So it has technical advantages, even though it's a low-tech device. But also, it it's quite a test run, isn't it? It's unmanned. It's unsophisticated. You can put whatever you want to on it. So if somebody shoots it down and picks up the pieces, they gather whatever information you want them to have. You can plant all kinds of information on that, and they'll think that they had a treasure trove. Just a thought. All righty, we're back. So... uh those of you that uh, don't hear this on the podcast, I played uh, Walk On By with uh, Dion Warwick as a bumper. And that's because uh, the great Burt Bacharach passed away this uh, this week. And uh, it's a great loss to the music world. He's 93. He has written so many things. Raindrops Fall on My Head, that song, Do You Know Way the San Jose, all kinds of things. Worked a lot with Dion Warwick, actually. And... I thought I would play it because not only is he kind of a giant in the music industry over many decades, but it just seemed appropriate to me considering we had the Grammys this week. And those of you that uh, watched the Grammys, and not a lot of you did, and uh, if you did, uh, I'm sorry. And uh, if you didn't, uh, you didn't miss anything. Well, you missed some things would have upset you, but you didn't miss anything of, of note, let's say. And I also thought it was interesting that this idea that was kind of in my head when I heard about Burt Bacharach is that we just don't have a lot of exceptional talent out there anymore that's a multi-generational, that impacts just a, a entire whole swath of a population. Now, you could say, if top of my head, since it was something that people were commenting on, Madonna has been around since, what, the mid-80s, and certainly her heyday was the 80s and maybe a little bit through the 90s and whatnot. I guess there may have been something in there in the early 2000s. I don't remember it. But now, of course, she's disappeared, and she's been consumed by an alien being. And uh, if you've seen her <laughs> or what remains of her or what has been substituted for her, she's totally unrecognizable. She has had some sort of surgery I think in her case, now people call it plastic surgery. I think in her case, it is actual plastic. So I do think that is probably a more correct version. It's unrecognizable. But for the most part, there's just not many people out there of talent that uh, are like that. And I think that's a problem. And not because I don't think Madonna necessarily, but is that there's less and less shared culture anymore. Now, this is something that I think is a problem because 
Our society is a multicultural, multi-ethnic society. These are not traditionally successful societies. We've talked about that before. Historically, it's extremely difficult to hold a nation state together or an empire or whatever you want to say when there is a number of self-identifying tribal groups within it, all of whom feel separate, sometimes speak different languages, uh, and are culturally so separate from another that there's very little overlap. That is not a recipe for a successful society. And we have seen that throughout history. And as I've commented before, there's only been a couple in history that have been even moderately successful. The Romans were successful, but only moderately so. And part of that was twofold. One, power. They had a lot of it. And they were able to control some of these other societies that they overran. And secondly, is that they elevated a number of the conquered tribes in Gaul, for instance, and some of my relatives in Upper Germany, although they never crossed uh, over into northern Germany, they left them alone. Because, let's face it, my relatives really didn't have a whole lot that anybody in Rome was interested in. They were really cranky and difficult, and uh, and it was cold and dark up there. So they just let it, it you know, who needs it? But they they elevated civilization. Britain, for instance, still has plenty of Roman ruins in it. And if you look how long uh, Rome pretty much ruled Britain, uh, it's surprising uh, if you are not familiar with history. So they elevated things in terms of their scientific achievements, engineering achievements, and even their governmental achievements, which, by the way, as I've mentioned before, much of our own governmental system is based upon some Roman models, which they cobbled together from a couple other places themselves. So... They held it together, but a lot of it was force and the fact that they brought a lot of uh, mobility, upward mobility, civilization-wise, to the table, which people could appreciate as time went by. And, of course, they also facilitated trade. One of the things that we talk about with Roman roads all the time, and it's a fantastic thing to believe that you can go to places in Europe, and there's still places where there are roads that the Romans built in 200 AD. Right? Uh, they were enormously talented builders, engineers, and incredibly practical people. And so by doing that, not only did it enhance the ability of their military to move, which was one big part of it. I mean, a Roman legion could travel along a Roman road at about 30 to 40% faster than they could on some sort of dirt path. Not only could... They march wider, but they could move faster. It was straighter. Uh, it had drainage. Uh, they actually crowned their roads. And during the height of the empire, along the roads on the side, they would also cut back the vegetation and trees for about 20 feet on each side of it to kind of discourage uh, people from uh, ambushing you. It was a little harder to do if uh, you had to run up in a clear spot and let them see you coming. So... That facilitated the ability to project force. It made the empire more successful, but it also uh, allowed a great deal more trade. One, it was faster. It was easier. It was paved. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't asphalt, but it was paved. They were, they were cobbled and uh, they were protected 
because the Empire patrolled them. So it increased the ability for the far-flung areas that were under the sway of the Empire uh, to f- to be able to profit from trade. So that helped hold that together, although it wasn't pretty sometimes, but it nevertheless was held together for quite a fair amount of time. Other than that, there's not really been a successful multicultural society or multi-ethnic society that's held together for very long. The ones that have tried it have usually had to resort to just pretty much overbearing force and uh, making vassal states out of uh, parts of the multi-ethnic groups. Persians, for instance, to a large extent. Even the Russians. You may remember that Russia is full of ethnic ethnic minorities, if you want to call them that. Uh, the term Rush and Russia, uh, the Rus is uh, really an offshoot of uh, Norse culture uh, that went instead of west to Britain and Normandy and those places to raid, went east and established some outposts in Novgorod, uh, which is not very far from what we now think of as Kiev or Kiev, which it should be. Um, and then so that area just became Russia even though most of the people that live in Russia now are not really related to any of those northern uh, Viking types that moved east. And it just took on that name. So there hasn't really been a very successful one. And, and they managed to hold it together, by the way, uh, through just direct force by cobbling it together. You have Cossacks, you have the people in Ukraine, the Georgians, you have people towards the Mongolian side. You have people up in Siberia. Many of these people speak dialects that are different. Uh, they're hard to understand. They don't all speak straight Russian. Uh, and not a successful society. It didn't hold together that long either. As a, as an empire, the, uh, you know, the Russian empire, such as it was, was held together mainly by force. And when it expanded into the Soviet Union, uh, the Union was held together by force. So, they're not very successful. Right now, the only other one that is moderately successful, such as the United States, is really India. And India is much more complex than most people know. I just read three books on it a few months ago, and it was very interesting. I thought I knew a little about it, and it turned out I knew very little about it. But, you know, right off the top, you have different religious uh, groups in there. You have Hindus. You have Muslims. You have Sikhs. Um, you have a smattering of other things. You have some dif- different ethnic groups around the edges. You have uh, a, still in place, in, in a certain sense, a caste system between uh, that is sort of a cultural, ethnic system of whom's who, right? Sort of a, it's almost a feudal type system that still lingers there. And while they're fairly successful, they struggle with it still. We've been much more successful, and I say have been, because really we were probably more successful in putting together our culture, our multi-ethnic culture, up until about, I don't know, 20 years ago? Now, we have some plenty of programs in place by government, made up by politicians who wanted to pander to various interest groups and decided to select people out by race or uh, ethnicity or whatever the case may be, try and pander to them and get their votes such that we've created some really bad economic conditions. We created some programs that have turned uh, certain inner city areas into unemployment zones to people uh, who are living off of what the British like to call the dole, who can't get off of it because 
the government has created a situation where there's no business there. Um, it's now become multi-generational. It's extremely difficult to break out of. And so you have a lot of crime because that's what happens in areas like that. And then now we have the problem with there's a lot of crime there. And so because there's a lot of crime there, it is somehow the part of rest of society when really the formula for why there's crime and poverty and hopelessness in those areas is all of these programs to try and buy votes and uh, try and slice the electorate up into little pieces and then seize those pieces and try and slam them together in some kind of voting base. And that's oh, what we have. So we're back. we're back. Rick Wagner here getting it right here on KNZZ, KGLN, all over a lot of other places and the Internet and hopefully on your radio podcast or maybe just listening at somebody else's window, whatever it is. I appreciate your listenership. Hey, uh, before we get off the balloons today, I guess we should talk about the balloon that got shot down on Friday. Well, it's not. It could be a balloon. Uh, it is. A, it could be an aircraft, a balloon, an object, uh, perhaps a uh, a rock. Uh, <laughs> went back there. Was listening to some of the. Uh, uh, well, actually, I have some notes here. Some of the explanations from our government officials about what this was. Now, anybody that thinks it's some kind of what a coincidence that we just had this big, enormous faux pas on the part of the administration and the military and pretty much everybody else that. The only folks that called attention to this last balloon was a, uh, you know, a newspaper reporter in Montana. And then after that, everybody was sufficiently humiliated as it drifted slowly across the United States. We finally shot it down after it had been all the way all over the continent of the United States. And so now all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, we discovered another something. We don't know what it could be. And I watched. Well, I didn't watch. Actually, I, I listened to some of these uh, spokespeople. This Admiral Kelly, who I've spoken a few times, what was he an admiral of? Uh, you know, he's he's a spokesperson now, sort of for national security issues. He's a babbler. Now he's better than uh, uh, Jean Pierre because uh, he at least babbles off the top of his head and doesn't babble from a notebook in front of him. But he just prevaricates and goes in circles, and then then he retreats to, of course, the last refuge of the true scoundrel which is sources and methods. Yes, that's right. Uh, he, and I think there was another general, probably was an Air Force general by the way he was talking, uh, who also, you know, just talked in a circles around, what is this thing? Why did you shoot it down? Why the decision to shoot it down? How come you didn't shoot the other thing down over, uh, you know, over the ice in Alaska instead of waiting for it? Just an endless series of questions, none of which were answered. And I just almost wasn't going to talk much about it because, all weekend now, we're just going to have just one endless bunch of guessing about this and that and everything. And I'll guess, too, I guess. Why not join the crowd? But I don't do too much of it is. My guess is these things are all over the place, is that they're cheap, uh, they drift around, and they get good intelligence from it. And apparently, we just been, if we do discover them, we leave them alone. Uh, so, yeah, now they're going to shoot one down to show what tough guys they are, I guess. I don't know. This one sounds like it's smaller than the last one. Hard to say because, friends, you cannot know what – because to know something like that, just to know it, puts you in grave danger. That's right. Because uh, you would then know sources and methods. That's right. Those are the watchwords of secrecy, sources and methods. And if you were to know those, you could be kidnapped perhaps by agents of the Chinese, North Koreans – 
uh, of course, uh, Putin puppets, uh, and and asked about this, and then you would you would have to say them with sources and methods, the thing that you've heard. Uh, of course, it came off the media, but uh, you know apparently it's dangerous knowledge to have out there. What sources and methods are you talking about? When you really listen to that and you stop and think about it for a minute, when they trot that thing out all the time, it's a little bit like the national security argument. Sources, well, of course, I'm not going to read anything about sources and methods. What do you mean sources and methods? We asked you, what was the point of shooting this one down over there when you waited till the other one was over here to shoot it down? That's not a sources of methods. That's why did you do that? That's a decision-making process. And if you'd like to waltz around a little bit about, it, well, we had some intelligence that indicated this was a little more dangerous. We can't talk about what it was. Or we, uh, you know, we saw that it was painted with a nasty, uh, nasty gram about President Biden. So we wanted to shoot it down right away or whatever it might be. Just say that. You don't have to talk about, there's no secrets that you have to talk about here. There's no like, well, we used a super sophisticated type of radar that is, uh, you know, under development now. Let's go into some of the details of that. No, no one's asking you to do anything like that. So don't pretend like they are. I'm just sick of it. I'm just sick of act, acting like Americans aren't supposed to know anything. And we even had that in this ridiculous Twitter uh, thing that was going on in Congress this week, where they were asking, uh, was it Baker, you know, the former quote, general counsel to the FBI, that of course, when you're in the FBI and you know, your general counsel with the FBI and you're involved in, I'm assuming, criminal investigations uh, or criminal slash civil investigations, uh, that uh, the natural fit for you when you leave that job would be a social media platform. Does that does that seem like that first job somehow makes you a good fit for the second job? I don't think so. But there sure is a lot of ex-government officials and FBI types that are showing up at these social media companies. Why is that? Is it because they control the flow of information? I know I'm sounding conspiratorial here. Here's the other problem about that is that conspiracies are all around us, of course. And all like has to have a conspiracy doesn't mean it's crazy. It just means like maybe to be a good idea for people that we think think the right way to be mixed up in folks that disseminate information just to kind of keep an eye on it. And the people that are hiring them think if we hire these people, it keeps us on the right side of those that keep talking about regulating us. Now, there's obviously a political bent to these social media companies. I mean, they're all made up of essentially uh, nerdy, uh, self-important people. And many of them, I think, are secretly guilty that they made so much money off of just kind of one idea. And it doesn't mean they're not smart and they're not doing some really interesting things. It just means that they... They have an arrested development problem. I was thinking about this. And this is sort of like goes the balloon stuff. I mean, everything's a secret. Everything is, you know, everything's too important. And, of course, when you're a kid, uh, that knowing something other people don't makes you feel really important. I mean, everybody's like that. But I have, I've always had this theory, and I, I, I'm not the only one here. A lot of people do, too. If you look at celebrities... There's this really interesting thing about celebrities, particularly in today's culture, where it, it's so instantaneous and you're immediately in the public eye. You're constantly in the public eye. And now you have to perform all the time. You're, you're expected to post things, do things, say things, uh, wear ridiculous clothing in public and be photographed for it and all this kind of stuff so that 
it's like being frozen in amber in a way. You know, amber is uh, essentially tree sap that we find things. It's really pretty, by the way. They made a lot of jewelry out of it in the uh, Middle Ages. Uh, and they're, they're always, it's always capturing things. It rolls on the ground. You know, it, it captures uh, ants or leaves or all kinds of weird things. But it preserves them in time, right? Because it coats them and you can see them and it preserves them that way. Somehow, this celebrity culture sometimes, especially now, it's always been a little bit this way, but it is so oppressive and pervasive that it takes people and they're trapped in whatever stage of their life they became famous in. And they just stay that way. And as time passes, they become very sad. Uh, and, and there's a certain amount of pathos in that, isn't there? I mean, look at Madonna. I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, it, it truly looks like plastic surgery. It, she looks plastic. It doesn't look, <laughs> it's, it's, she looks like she's someone's idea of, you know, well, if we could just make a human doll and, uh, it won't be very good at first. It'll sort of look like those dolls were made in the fifties, but it's, you know, that's sort of what, what's happened here. And it's because she's frozen in this idea that she has to be the cutting edge symbol and she has to be different than everybody else. And, of course, different is actually pretty easy. You can be different in so many different ways. Most of them are not good or attractive or even fun to be. But that was where she was frozen, constantly changing, you know, being on the cutting edge, being different, challenging things. Well, our society is so bizarre now that if you want to live on the outer edge of what society is now, you know, you have to either look, act, and sound like a space alien, pretty much, or wear a top hat with horns on it, like in uh, the Grammys this week with poor Sam Smith, who, you know, just is distributing to everybody's attention what his own particular uh, issues are. And we call it entertainment now. So I, I think that these these people with the same thing when you're when you're very rich all of a sudden, just boom, because it does happen to these guys. You know, they're working in a garage on an algorithm, and four years later, they're multi-billionaires. And everything changes. Uh, attention is on them. All of a sudden, they go from everybody talking about what a nerd they are to talking about what a genius they are. And they have hangers on, and all of a sudden, that girls talk to them for a change. And they get to buy cool stuff. And, of course, they go down and they, they, they buy a new Porsche. And they, uh, you know, then all the things just happens to them. Boom. And somehow... They become frozen at that that sort of adult that that sort of post adolescent stage, and it keeps them at this sort of crusading, uh, you know, it, it's the Churchill quote, isn't it? You know, if you if you don't have uh, if you're not a a liberal when you're twenty, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative when you're forty, you have no head. Right? Well, they don't go through that. They get stuck. They're frozen at that sort of liberal. The world's all you know coexist, uh, visualize world peace. I mean, that sort of thing that a lot of people in our day and age go through. They just get frozen there. Boom. Just like Amber. Uh, they get everything they could possibly want. They have a, feel kind of guilty about it. They want everybody else to be happy and not envious of them. They want to admire them, of course. And so they want to do things and make us do things with their money and influence to make them feel about themselves. Because they're trapped in their own little box there. And, you know, it happened with celebrities. Now it's happening with the super rich. And especially now where 
people go from having very little to way, way more than anybody's had in history in a very short period of time, and oftentimes when they're fairly young. And we've always had older people who towards, you know, as they've gotten so much wealth, they want to give something back because a lot of them, and certainly the robber barons, you know, in the uh, early part of the 20th century, got to the point where, you know, get the Carnegie's and uh, the Vanderbilt's and the J.P. Morgan's and people like that who, the Goulds, you know, uh, not a good, good, great group of people, some of them. And they would like to be remembered for something besides being incredibly rapacious and greedy. So they start giving back and create funds. I mean, Carnegie built all these uh, wonderful libraries all over the place and things like that. But uh, so there's that piece of it. But the other piece of it is this this frozen idea that I am forever stuck basically with the ideas of a college sophomore, you know, who uh, has read too much John Donne poetry and uh, have made signs on the weekends to carry around to advertise my virtue. And now I'm that. Now I'm just stuck there. And I went from being a 27-year-old uh, who had no money to a 28-year-old that had a huge amount of money. And now I'm a 35 to 37-year-old, but I'm exactly the same as I was back then. My attitudes haven't changed. There's no need to. I, I've been, the money has insulated me. I've had no need to change. And my attitudes are the same. I just have a lot more mechanisms to influence the world around me with that money. Zuckerberg is a good example of that. Why does he pour $460 million into these elections out here? Well, there's probably two reasons. One of them is like the Sam Bankman-Fried thing, which is that I'd like to not be bothered by the government, so I'm going to give money to people in power so that they like me and leave me alone. That's been going on for a really long time, uh, long before even this country was around. The other part of it is I want to feel like I'm doing something. I want to be admired by the media and by young people out there, you know, to say, wow, I'd like to grow up to be like Mark and wear a black T-shirt and and ride a, a weird kind of uh, surfboard with a ski on it and, uh, you know, be a cool guy like him. Of course, he's not a cool guy. He always wanted to be, but he's not, and he never will be. Neither did Bill Gates. <laughs> and so they just keep trying to do these things. And we, unfortunately, are the ones who get caught in the middle of this stuff. And they want to start societal trends and... And in the past, that, that has happened, and it's moved things. It's moved the dial around on stuff. But the real danger now, of course, is the idea that this huge concentration of wealth, and it is enormous, is something we've never seen before in the kind of concentration in certain areas that it is. And that allows them to influence opinion because of the way we get news and information and how we portray things right, that come across to us. And we can portray things instantly because we can do it online. We can do it through the media, more or less traditional media on television, stuff like that. And, and we can just constantly drive a narrative, bang, bang, bang. Is this new? No, of course not. I mean, the newspapers at the end of the 19th century and into the well, really into the almost middle part and then it was still going on, but it was really being driven in the 20s and 30s by the newspapers who, you know, the Hearst Empire and places like that, that were able to just drive a narrative. 
You know, some people think the Hearst newspapers pretty much started the Spanish-American War. And you're able then to have enormous power and reach at the media that way. Now, you don't even have to distribute the newspaper. Someone can be sitting in some office in Riverside, California, type up a story, hit a key, and it can show up on people's screens all over the United States within a second. That's a different kind of power. And when you have the ability to do that and then money to disseminate that and then to ally that money with people, in other words, uh, non-governmental organizations, we hear that all the time, NGOs. Uh, I like to bring that up because I see the word NGO, well, the term NGO in, in news stories. Now, they expect everybody to know what that means. not non-governmental organization. And for the most part, they're not-for-profits that are started by a lot of these big tech guys or just groups that go out and recruit money from these big tech guys. Remember, there's a lot of middlemen out there. Uh, the Clintons are a great example of this. They kind of perfected a couple of these things. The Clinton Foundation is not actually what you would think of as a charitable foundation or a not-for-profit foundation in the sense that uh, my understanding is they never really directly gave anything to anybody except their own staff. What they did with all this money they'd collect, speaking fees, you know, stuff like that, nothing that would ever influence policy on the part of anybody, of course. <laughs> Perish that thought. They would just give money to other organizations, let them distribute it. So that gives them control in a completely different way. They don't even have to do it. They give money to other organizations who then become beholden to them. So it's it's like a network. This is it's like downward multi-level marketing. They distribute the money down, and they get the advantage of having this organization that they're giving money to to be beholden to them and their agenda and gets to use their volunteers, their outreach to do the things that the Clinton Foundation wanted. And they don't have to worry about managing it or anything else because it's all done with just money and handing it out to the right people. It's pretty smart, really, if you think about it. And so you you get organizations like this, and so many of them are are run now by people who were trapped in this sort of cocoon of amber when they became wealthy and how they feel like they should behave with it. And we have to constantly be aware that we're the recipients of this kind of stuff. And that's one of the reasons that Congress needs to get involved in breaking these companies up, because they need to be focused not on manipulating us, but the competition between other companies. That's one way that you stop that oppressive conduct is if instead of you know, worrying about how we manipulate everybody across the United States and how they think about things, plus make them buy our product, they need to think about how do we make our product better and more reflective of the values of the people we're trying to sell it to than a competitor. And when there's no competitor, that doesn't happen. They do what they want. One of the best things I've heard for a while, and I don't like either company, is the fact that Microsoft, which has a search engine Bing, as you know, which has, I don't know, 10 or 12% of the uh, searches that go across the uh, Internet, maybe a little bit more, has always had trouble with Google. Well, they realize that the next step in searching the Internet and getting information is not just an algorithm where it says, okay, if you ask this, then we send you here, and then the rest of your question is this, and then all those rankings and this, all these ways the algorithm that Google uses or a series of algorithms to hunt down things on the Internet. AI, artificial intelligence, 
is a different way to approach that. It uses algorithms, but all internal algorithms within itself, and it just instantly asks a whole bunch of questions, sorts through millions of sites and finds things, catalogs them, and it's like asking a really well-informed person, where can I find some information about how to put a carburetor on my 67 Chevy Nova? Instead of going through the algorithm itself every time it asks a question, artificial intelligence just already knows because it's doing it all the time. It's constantly, you know, gathering information, and it just tells you, well, you should go here, and here's five or six choices. It's just a, it's a slightly different way of doing it than the, than the traditional algorithm, and Google is petrified by this because it's the next step in how to search the Internet and really how to do a lot of other things, a lot of it pretty scary stuff, actually, and so they've been trying to catch up. Uh, Microsoft has been partnering with OpenAI, which is the company that uh, runs this uh, chatbot, this uh, artificial intelligence that everybody's excited about, ChatGPT. And so Google is behind in AI. And they had a terrible result this last week where they trotted out their version of the chatbot, the uh, AI, and had it answer some questions, and it was wrong. And it was a mess. Their presentation was a mess, and it became very apparent to everybody who watched it that they were freaked out by what was going over at Microsoft, uh, investing with OpenAI, and they were trying to rush their whole thing. And that does not make you look good. So all of this, as I know as disjointed as it sounds, sort of is tied together. You have a, a governmental unit that has become more and more assertive of its own interest over that of ours. And the way that you make that operate is you control information. You have people that are controlling information through their stranglehold on the media and the Internet, and not enough of them. Far too many companies, far too few companies are able to do that. These people are trapped like these celebrities in this idea of, oh, I must, I must do good and I must do these. It's a very simple-minded thing for people who run complex organizations. And, of course, the government likes to take advantage of that. They want to use them to help them assert control. Governments always want to control. It doesn't matter if it's now or the 10th century. It's always the same. We have, that's what we have to defend against. And so they use all of the, this to their advantage, naivete of these companies, the money, and all of it comes together to influence us. We have to understand that and constantly resist it. Back next week.